You're listening to Soul Radio. Welcome to Channel 33, a new podcast series presented by Soul. I'm your host, Yusra Al-Baghir. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with creators who are shaping the cultural landscape and raising the bar in their respective fields. Delving into their personal journeys, we'll explore the essence of creative work and the ingredients necessary for immortal impact. Today, my guest is legendary athlete and entrepreneur Luol Deng. We got on a call to unpack the power of purpose, community and legacy. What excites me the most about speaking to you is the fact that you have you know, this talent and this amazing craft that you've worked on for decades, more than a decade, I would say. And then you also are someone who has your hand in so many different pots and doing so many different things. I just want to go all the way back when you were growing up and you were, you were born in South Sudan. Now, the now the the independent nation of South Sudan. Back then, you were born in the state of Wow in South Sudan. Your dad was a minister for the government, and then you moved. So, what was that moment for your family during the second civil war between the north and the south that your family decided it's too dangerous? We have to we have to go to Egypt. As a kid, I knew something was happening, uh, but most of us were kept out of the conversation. Uh, the elders just planned, my mom, dad, my older brothers and sisters, there was a plan to leave. And the plan was uh, we would go to Egypt as if we go into a vacation. Uh, my dad would then stay behind uh, for a few months and then he would fly to uh, the UK. But what happened is what we had to do was my mother couldn't go with us. So my brothers and my sisters, we left. I uh, remember I left everything behind, just a bag maybe, acting like we're just going and we're coming back. And then when we got to Egypt, we were told that we're not coming back. And I remember as a kid, just, you know, really going with whatever my brothers and sisters do. And then from that, it turned into really five years before I saw my mom and dad again, because they had to go to the UK and we were in Egypt still. So... But you yeah. were a lot of you were a lot of kids at the same time, sort of going through the same thing. Yeah. So my mother had nine kids. I'm one of nine. Yeah, and I'm the eighth. Uh, so I have a younger sister. But uh, it felt like you know the way it is with uh, Sudanese families, the elders always you know do everything. So, Takes the hit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, so it was easier for me. I always tell people that because my brothers and sisters were there, so. You know, as crazy as sometimes and as tough as the story sound, people have to understand that I was a little kid being taken care of. So, you know, I, I remember things and I but I didn't have the responsibility of, you know, certain things. So, yeah. That's actually interesting because I think when you said, when you said it to me, I immediately thought of your siblings surrounding you. But I think the average person who doesn't understand like what Sudanese, South Sudanese families are like would be like, oh my God, you were just small and you were on the street by yourself. You know, they immediately like make these like assumptions. Yeah, no, I always tell people, I think by the time I was seven, eight years old, I realized that my parents weren't there. And when we were living in Egypt, my brothers and sisters, obviously they were strict, but 
having three older brothers, I just hung out with them. So at the age of seven, eight, I was doing what they're doing. I was out in the streets. I was hanging out with friends when it's late, when I'm supposed to be inside. So I wasn't really growing up like a regular kid in Western world per se, or, you know, where seven o'clock, eight o'clock, you better be home or somebody better be watching you. Uh, I was, I was just living as an adult and that kind of made me uh, grow up faster. It made me mature a lot faster. Um, and that's how I really got into sports before that, because I was playing with my older brothers. I was being, I was the youngest, but that's who I hung out with. So when we moved, then we went to the UK, said first we moved to, uh, I, we were put in Wimbledon. I, I remember living in Wimbledon for like a year, maybe. I went to school right away, but the advantage that I had when I came over was sports because I was always playing with older kids. So that's really, you know, where I got my advantage from. I was just a lot mature than most of kids my age because I've been through so much more than they have. And what was that moment that you actually picked up a basketball? Do you remember? It was actually in Egypt. Again, with my older brothers, I remember they would always play. We would go to church Sunday school where all the South Sudanese community came together and people would just talk and catch up. Uh, mostly more than anything. But then there was a basketball court, which I still have pictures of where the rim uh, and the floor wasn't necessarily the best, but we made the best out of the situation. We just created games, but we weren't necessarily playing with the rules or the right rules. We just played the game the way we think it should be played. Um, and that was mostly my older brothers and their friends. But then when Manute, Manute Ball uh, was a day in the NBA at the time. He came to visit the South Sudanese refugees community in Egypt just to motivate us and encourage us. And everyone looked up to Manute. He was our celebrity. He was the person who he was doing so much to try to bring, you know, people back home to try to bring peace so people could get back home. So he came to kind of lead the community and kind of encourage the community. But then he saw my brothers and his, their friends playing basketball. Manute being Manute, he has such a big heart. He decided that he was just going to stay for a whole month. Uh, he was supposed to be there for a week. It turned into a month. We're just teaching basketball. So my oldest brother is really good at paying attention to details. So Manute knew he only had a month. He was training them like crazy, like all these drills, making them run, conditioning. He really wanted them to to just get better in a month. Yeah, um, to absorb before, his expertise. Yeah, before he leaves. So then what happened is my brother was so inspired by Manute that he became a coach and just took everything Manute was teaching and started forcing those drills on me. And then at the time I was seven years old, uh, eight years old, doing all these drills that, you know, are really advanced, but he really thought, that's how you're supposed to train every day. So I was being drilled every day. So fast forward time. So when I came over to the UK, it took me two years to go to a basketball gym because I just, by the time my brother was pushing me, I just, I, I, I didn't want any of it. I thought that's how basketball is everywhere. I thought you just, <laughs> you know. He I traumatized was, you. Yeah, I just thought it was just extreme training all the time. So I kind of avoided it for two years. And finally, I went to Brixton Topcats and I went with my brother again, my other brother, Joe, who was at the time was being recruited by every school in the US. So I went with him and I started playing and I realized that I was better than, you know, most of the, I was 12 years old at the time, but I was better than most of the men 
uh, team. Um, and I was only 12. So then I realized that I'm really, really ahead of my time because of the training that my brother was forcing me to do. And that's where really basketball took off for me. You know, looking back at that moment, that moment ball came, like how validating was it for you guys? Like to see, not only for him to come, but to see, you know, one of your own do so well. Yeah, it was really inspiring. I think, you know, for our community, even growing up, and we have it now in the South Sudanese community where I, I really try to do, you know, speak out as much as I can because I realize, you know, it's very difficult as a nation or a group of people when you don't have individual um, that are cons consistently proud of where they're from. I mean, a lot of us, you know, we grow up in a culture where you're proud of so many things, but a lot of times you're taught to hide it. Um, and you think, you know, sometimes you think I'm presenting myself or I'm presenting my culture the right way of just following the right thing. Like, for example, there's a lot of times where you, in our culture, you would have a lot of great success, but you wouldn't even talk about it or celebrate it because people would look at that as bragging or, you know, and as you get older, you start to realize that, you know, for every kid, for every kid that's going through things out there, especially South Sudanese kids, for me, every minute that they get to see me uh, celebrating our culture and celebrating our people and just them realizing that I'm so proud of being that, I think they, they get attached to it. And I think that's what Manute was doing at the time. Uh, we were so hurt by everything being displaced from home, everything that's going on, and you couldn't do anything about it. Being powerless is very, I mean, everyone knows, you know, it's its very challenging and it's hurtful when you want to do more for your people, but you just feel defeated. So Manute really just kind of more than basketball, he was trying to get people to to just believe that we're going to go back. We're going to build our home. We're going to have peace. He's who we had. He's he's the one person that we had that's on TV. We didn't have anyone else with fame and, and the platform that he had, you know, and Manute would hang out with people like he knew them for years. And that's where really, as a child, seeing that uh, he left that mark on me. I always tell people seeing that my father did the same thing. Uh, I consistently grew up seeing people who wanted to do so much more for others. And I just always wanted to do that too, so. Yeah, because I mean, I think people take it for granted, but it is actually so easy for people to leave and just be like, new life, you know, this is the new me and detach from where they're from, when actually it's a lot, it's, it's so much more, you know, rewarding, but it's actually difficult to keep revisiting that pain and keep going back and keep seeing your people, you know, struggle with the same things in different clothing, you know? Yeah, you know, it happens a lot, especially in our culture, uh, Sudanese. Uh, it happens a lot with men more than women. Uh, and the way I would break it down is is this way. I, I feel like a lot of times, our culture, we've we've grown up putting so certain responsibilities on gender role, right? So it's it, it become the men really at times feel that they're not succeeding in what they're supposed to do, which is you know uh, lead and protect and and bring you know uh, financial support to the house and everything. So what happens is in our culture, a lot of things are going on, and instead of fighting it or instead of doing things to make things better we start blaming things for why our situation is the way it is, which is a part of it. But a lot of times, for example, South Sudanese community, a lot of people get together on Facebook 
and really just talk bad consistently, which I understand, but a lot of people are doing it because they're trying to validate themselves to give themselves a reason for why they're struggling and why they're not doing anything, you know? And I always tell people, you know, don't don't compare your dollar to someone else's hundred. Uh, what you can do is what you can do, you know? That's where you start, so. So it's interesting that you talk about community and then, you know, you leave Egypt, you have this amazing South Sudanese community, it sounds, in Egypt. And then you go to Brixton, which is known for community, right? It's like the community hub in London, in South London. And obviously over the years has suffered from gentrification and a fragmentation of that community. But still, you know, when you think of black community in London, you think of Brixton. So how was that? Man, Brixton is everything. Um, you know, I, I I I always tell people like every time I talk about London, I say Brixton. Um, I always mention Brixton because it's such a big part of my uh, just childhood and upbringing. Um, like you said, I think when when uh, growing up in Brixton, you really felt that um, you, we we just felt that we were leaders of the community. Uh, that just we were just the, the neighborhood that people looked up to in terms of just the history of what, what happened in Brixton, how Brixton came together. Um, there was also a toughness when we spoke about Brixton, which we were proud of, even though we knew there's a lot going on in Brixton. Everywhere we went, you wanted to let people know that you are from Brixton. Uh, when we did events, uh, like basketball tournaments or music uh, concerts or whatever you want to think of, it was, you know, taking place in Brixton and that brought more, you know, uh, pride to it. But for me being, you know, coming from where I came from, I felt like Brixton was, you know, I found a home, um, you know, just my, my whole life, we just kept moving, kept moving. And then when it came to Brixton, it felt like, we had people from everywhere, um, you know, and, and being in one place with people with different background kind of made me feel more at home. Uh, we shared similar stories, not necessarily left the country, uh, our country for the same reasons, but we were new and, and strangers to that country. There's a lot of Africans, there's a lot of Caribbeans, you know, there's people from everywhere in Brixton and that, and that really kind of brought us even together and closer. And how did it feel when you found out that you were your face was on local community money, like Brixton community money? Yeah, no, it's it's really amazing. I, I still I try to tell, you know, sometimes people ask me about it and I try to explain it. And I, I still can't really believe it. Um it, it's really for me to come from where I came from and just, you know, what the game of basketball has done for me. Uh, to just, you know, things like being put in the money or encouraging people or being used as an example to uplift people and encourage people to let them know that, you know, anything is possible. Yeah, it's been such a, you know, an amazing honor. But, you know, till today, when I go back to Brixton, uh, when I walk, you know, in the streets of Brixton, I feel like the love that I get from people is more than anywhere else. Uh, you know, anything similar to South Sudan, but when I'm in Brixton, people still remember uh, and people can't carry on. It's just a close-knit community. With, even with everything that's happening, people still remember the basketball days. days. Yeah, yeah. So that's really amazing. You know what's amazing about that is it feels like it's actually 
a tangible token. Like it just shows how much you mean to people there. And a place that could have just been a transit spot for you, right? Really was a place where you like put down some roots and and really like touched people. But we were really a close-knit community uh, inside of Brixton. And I think, I remember times where we would be out in the streets or between practices and we would have family members come up to us. And because we were part of uh, the Top Cats, they would really direct us the right way, whether it's go home or stay out of trouble. It, yeah, it was really, uh, it was close. Or think our coach, the late Jimmy Rogers, he people would go to him and say, I saw so-and-so out and about doing this and that oh, and wow. then yeah and then in practice everyone would be punished and we would run and do all this stuff so jimmy really ran brixton as a community where everyone was responsible for how they treat yeah. others takes a you village know? yeah yeah i remember him saying me and my friend got in trouble because we saw one of my teammates mother carrying groceries back from the store going home and Jimmy saw us and he said we didn't take care of her carrying the wow. groceries. So even it's though that detailed, like Yeah, <laughs> even though she had like maybe two bags and we didn't think about it that way. But that's how Jimmy was raising us because he knew he would always push us because he knew that some of us didn't really have that close of a family. So this this was our family, our community. So everyone kind of fell uh within the family. How did you meet Jimmy? How did you get sort of recruited into the Top Cats? Jimmy actually took us in where uh, my brother went to uh, my older brother, Joe, that I told you was playing basketball at the time. Uh, he first went to Crystal Palace uh, and there's more to Crystal Palace. Uh, that's where I do my basketball camps now. But there was a team there that di uh, didn't think my brother was good enough uh, when he went there. Mind you, my brother's seven feet. Uh, but for some reason, the coach had made up his mind and my brother didn't make the team. So my brother heard about Brixton, so he went to Brixton. Uh, as soon as he walked into Brixton, uh, Jimmy saw my brother. He saw him play and then told my brother that he's probably the best player he's ever seen. So the difference there is crazy because one club is rejecting him, the other club. Uh, and that was just Jimmy. I don't know how many players he's told that, but Jimmy was really known to, when it was one-on-one, -on -one, Jimmy would tell you that, you know, uh, you're great, you're everything, you're, you're you know, but in front, yeah, but in front of a team, he made you, he let you realize that you're just, you know, just like everyone else, you're going to get treated like everyone else. So my brother told me to come with him to Brixton and that's how I ended up at Brixton and, you know, started playing. Uh, at the time, Jimmy didn't know I was 12 years old. Um, and he just went to my brother and said, I wanted, I want him to be part of the under 19 teams and the men's team. And my brother was like, you know, he, uh, I, I was six, what, maybe six, two, six, three. When I was 12, I was a big kid. So my brother told 12, Jimmy. A six foot three, 12 year old. Sorry. Like that just hit me. That is insane. Yeah. I that was is taught, insane. Yeah. Like if, you just looked. So all the kids are like five, like four feet right and you're just well, like two and, feet i always tell people i had an early growth spurt um between really the age of nine ten maybe till i was 14 where yeah. it's just crazy you just growth shot up. Spurt. Yeah. yeah um but 
I remember Brixton, I was playing with men and everyone really didn't, you know, till my brother told him I'm 12. And then <laughs> they that's were when, like, nah. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's when it just took off for me because I couldn't, they couldn't believe how good I was or how big I was for being 12. And that's for me, it just felt like, okay, they really believe in me, you know? And I try to tell people that it really goes a long way when you have people believing in you. And it just made me confident. Cause I, I remember I used to go to school. I was the biggest kid and I wanted to play football. And there's times where I was just, you know, I never thought that I'm gonna be, I, I wanted to be a football player, but there was no one telling me like, you're gonna be great at it. You're gonna be this. Cause I was too tall. Uh, with basketball, it was the opposite. It was like, you have to do this. You, how could you not? You're going to be great. You're going to be this. So I went towards basketball because people believed in me, um, you know, and that's really the difference that it made. So Brixton was a huge part of my life because I was at a place where, okay, I've been through a lot. We've moved a lot. I'm trying to fit in in a new culture, but here is a community that wants me so badly uh, and encouraging me and welcoming me in and telling me I'm going to be great. Uh, Jimmy telling me you're going to be the best player to ever come out of this country. And I started to believe it and I started pushing for it. And it became that more than anything, I couldn't wait to get up to go to that community to be loved and just to, to play basketball. So really, that's a huge part of my life. So I, sorry, I interrupted you earlier. So you were saying you were talking about the moment where your brother told you you should come and and meet like these this team and, and come play in Brixton. And so tell me about the first moment that you and Jimmy met? So we went to Brixton and Jimmy being Jimmy, my brother was uh, at the time, you know, probably one of the best players at Brixton. And he brought me in and he just told Jimmy, you know, this is my brother. Um, you know, he's going to practice with us today. I remember it was a Wednesday. Uh, and Jimmy right away just said, all right, come on, what are you doing? You know, like, hurry up. Like, go change, hurry up, whatever, whatever. So I come in. And at the time, honestly, growing up, I always tell people we didn't have much. So even, you know, I'm wearing the same shoes that I play football in, that I, you know, go to school in. It's really, and the first thing Jimmy was like, look, you're not playing if you don't lace those shoes up. You know, I was just, you know, how we used to go in school and get on the train, I mean, on the bus, you always had to have a swag on you where you don't even tie your shoes. It's just a, a teenage thing, right? So so Jimmy right away gets on me. So in my mind, I'm like, this guy is crazy. He's intense. And Jimmy has a really, really deep voice. Uh, so I'm in my mind, I'm like, I don't even want to be here. I, I just, I want to play football. Like, why am I, I'm just doing this for my brother. He, he forced me to come here. So oh, we wait, where were your parents? Sorry. Were your parents with you? Yeah, yeah. So another story with my parents. Uh, I love my parents, but my parents weren't really, my parents didn't understand uh, sports the way we did. Uh, they loved us playing. They supported us playing. But I, honestly, they didn't think sports could take us to where, we, where it took me. Uh, so anyway, so going back to that. So we started doing drills and Jimmy is pushing me. I'm playing with men and I'm coming last in like every race. Um, you know, like these guys are stronger than me, but I'm really playing well. I'm skilled. I'm a skinny kid, but I'm really skilled. I'm passing, I'm driving by people, I'm scoring, but you know, every now and then I'm messing up and Jimmy is just like, you gotta be tougher than that. You gotta be strong. Like he was just on me right away, but 
later on, I realized, you know, when my brother told him that I'm 12, he lost his mind. Uh, you know, he's like, there's no way this kid is unbelievable. And he started praising me. But right away, he decided he made up his mind that he was going to be on me from that day. Um, and I remember it took me almost, I would say, six months where I was skipping practice. I was coming once a week, maybe twice a week. He would call my house. He was talking to my dad. What am I doing? You know, I have I have a chance to change you know, my life, my family's life. He really believed, you know, right away that I'm going to be great. Uh, and he just saw it, you know, and he consistently kept pushing me. And from there, it became a thing where, you know, he would use me as an example when I'm not there. But when I'm there, he was always on me because he knew that people are going to start praising me too much. And he, he feared, you know, me getting a big head and just thinking that I'm, you know, I'm it. So he kept denying me from playing with the English national team or playing with anyone. Wow. My, my, Yeah, he wouldn't let me play with anyone that's my age group. Because um, he knew that you would just be like, I'm a god, you know, like I'm yeah. better than everyone. <laughs> yeah, he really had it all planned and he just kept, he wouldn't let me, he just kept making me play with older people, um, you know, and I would learn and struggle and do well. And, and that's how really... You know, the first thing I remember about Jimmy is right away being tough on me. Um, you know, it was just that tough love. Uh, and right before Jimmy passed away, I remember, you know, him sharing stories with us and telling us that he was always tough on us because he knew what it's like outside of Brixton. Um, you know, and to really think about where the world is now and what everyone is talking about is is really what people are going through uh you know nobody loves you uh and if you don't get you know people if you don't get tough love for people to tell you the tough way you're gonna have a hard time and and jimmy was just letting us know uh his way to just get us ready for anything so so that's it's such an amazing it feels like such an amazing relationship where you have a coach who makes you believe what they see in you, but also like make sure that you are prepared for the reality checks that you will get down the line. Like that is a true teacher, right? Because it could be easy to just gas you up and just let you like fly off like some helium balloon, but he really anchored you in like reality. Yeah, and which is a lot of people, a lot of people do that because people fear losing you, uh, but they don't understand that they are actually losing you. Um, you know, in a way, Jimmy was just so tough that he knew even if I was mad at him, uh, that it was going to shape me to be better for later on. You know, the only thing, the only thing Jimmy's banking on is that, you know, I'm brave enough to go through it and understand that it's making me better, you know, because sometimes you could put someone through tough times uh, out of love but they're not brave enough to understand it. And they might lose you or you might lose them, but later on realize it. Jimmy was banking on, he didn't care if you stop talking to him later on, as long as you're good, uh, you know, and, and it takes you time for a lot of people. I know so many people now who come back to Brixton and just talk about if Jimmy wasn't there, it wouldn't have happened because you leave and then you realize that this guy, you know, the what he believed in really worked, especially for us, growing up in Brixton, you know, it's it's not an easy place to grow up. You know, most of the kids are either joining gangs or they're in and out of prison or, you know, and Jimmy knew that. He knew that once we left that basketball court, 
our world is tough outside, you know? So why, how can he be the toughest thing that you're facing today that everything else you can get through? So that's really what's his, uh, his yeah. mindset. So then how did you transition to the US? Cause it feels like Brixton was real, like a real home for you, a real base. Yeah, um, it's it, it has a lot to do with basketball, leaving the environment that I was in uh, to, to have an opportunity to really, you know, play this game at the highest level. You were a 14-year-old kid and you were, had the foresight, or at least you had people around you to tell you, no, this is you're not just staying in Brixton. There's a bigger world out there for you to conquer, you know, like get out there. When I was at Brixton, I, I realized that I was really, you know, ahead of my age uh, in terms of my skill level in basketball. Uh, but I knew that basketball is such a different level in the U.S. Um, and I remember when I came over to the U.S. at the time, my high school coach had never seen me play. He just heard about me. But my school was really recruiting my sister. Uh, my sister was really good at basketball also. So they wanted to give her a scholarship badly. And she was two years ahead of me. So my dad wanted me out of uh, just the, the environment that we were in. So him and Jimmy decided that it was better for me to go to the U.S. Uh, Jimmy wanted me to stay and develop, but he also believed that I was better than every kid in the U.S. Uh, he just really believed that. It's, it, it, so he wanted me to go and just for people to see. So we decided that I was going to go with my sister. So my high school coach took me in not knowing, you know, what he's getting. He was really doing a favor for the girls basketball team to take the little brother uh, with with her, with my sister. So I get I get to the U.S. and at 14, I'm just devastated. I'm leaving home, but I'm also excited to be in the U.S. Um, and I remember playing basketball right away. Uh, we went and played a pickup game uh, in practice. And my high school coach, Joe Montagno, was a very close uh, friend of mine. Uh, took me into the office and set me down. Uh, this is after the first practice. And he just said that, you know, at 14, he told me that you probably going to go to the NBA from here or you're going to go to the best uh, basketball schools in the U.S. Yeah, I want to prepare you and get you ready for what's coming. Uh, and when he said that, I honestly... Uh, I, I knew that at that time I knew that okay basketball is probably it this is this is probably what my career is uh, this is what I need to do how did it feel like what do you remember from that moment you know when he said that I just I was happy that I'm at the same level as the kids from the US because I've heard so much about them uh, but also I was mature enough and I think Brixton helped a lot where I was humble enough to understand and realize that this is just words. Uh, you know, anything could happen. I could be lazy. I could, you know, be cocky. I could stop working out. I could get an injury. Nothing is really guaranteed. Uh, and I just wanted to focus on being the best I could be. Uh, so I just it stuck with it. And and from then on, I gave up football. I gave up every other sports. I only did, uh, I did track uh, just because it helped me with basketball. Uh, but everything was really just focused on being a basketball player. And so you go from the UK and you end up in Chicago. 
what was that like? You know, the Mecca of basketball. I mean, I, I wasn't even that into basketball as a kid. And I was like, Chicago Bulls, like that's my team, you know? So how did it, how did it feel? I mean, was there a moment then where you, you had your Jordan moment where you're like, this is it, you know, this is, this is my legacy. This is my life. So when I was drafted by, by Chicago, it took me way back to, you know, when Manute came to Egypt, um, I just thinking way back when Manute was in the NBA. And I think since that moment, that's when I first heard about the NBA and always thought, oh man, what would it be like to actually play in the NBA and to be like Manute where, you know, you walk in a room and everyone is screaming and people kind of, you know, that was really my first thing. And then I realized that I was being uh, drafted by the team that I only knew as a kid, uh, Chicago Bulls. It's really, there was no basketball on TV and we knew Michael Jordan. Everything was Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls, everything. Uh, so when my name got called in, in the draft day, uh, I was saying with my mom, my dad, my How old were dead. you? Uh, I was 19. I just turned 19 when okay. I got drafted. So really when you think about it, um, uh, at age of 10, you know, I was a refugee in in, in uh, Egypt. At the age of eighteen, I was getting drafted in the NBA. So, just in eight years, that's how much my life has changed. Um, and everything that we just talked about, we just went through it. And I'm sitting there. Manute is there. My mom is there. My dad is there. My some of my family is there. And I hear my name. And you know, I still have the video of my mom just, you know, screaming and, and really celebrating. And that moment for me is something that I would never, ever forget more than anything. Because in my mind, I just knew that my family, especially my mom, has been through a lot. Um, and to have her have that day in a stage where it's the highest it gets for anyone in, in basketball, um, you know, I just, I was so happy that you know, I'm her son, like her son is actually being picked. Um, and that's all I remember. That's really, you know, the whole time, that's all I remember. And then when I got to Chicago, uh, my first basketball game with the Bulls is the first time my mom has ever seen me play basketball. Uh, all these years, she's, you she's know. Just she's just like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, she, she's, she's supported me, but it was till that day when she walked in the arena where she actually realized like, oh, wow. This is a, like, like like a life-changing yeah, thing. Like this, this is a big deal. Like yeah. this is it, you know, walking in 30,000 people and you're just like, wow. Because I feel like, you know, Sudanese and South Sudanese moms, they don't, they don't take things like that are outside of traditional avenues. They don't take it seriously until they're like, oh, so you're really, you're this good at it, you know? Like how, how did, you know, basketball, NBA basketball, programs play into that was it just like a clean draft or was there like you know any sort of initiative from the nba to like pluck youth like basketball without borders or no that was all me um i think the nba supports whatever direction you want to go to when i got drafted and i got to the nba i started to think about all that stuff you know and it goes back to the culture thing where i honestly when i got drafted i i felt like I had to be humble. Um, I had to let people know that I'm so blessed to have the opportunity because I really, and I still till this day, believe that, you know, so many things have to go the right way for me to be me. Uh, and 
there's so many people who are more talented, uh, who could do so much more, but just the way things align, the opportunity never occurs to them. So it always stuck in the back of my mind. It just, it, it was that thing that always brought me back, no matter how well I did or anything, you know, I'm blessed, I'm lucky, I'm uh, the opportunity, you know, I have to make a platform for someone else because, you know, everything that Manute did, I was the one that made it to the NBA. Um, everything that I'm doing right now, there's so many kids that will get that, even if it's one kid, um, you know, but what Manute did is so, it's changed so many lives, but we're only measuring the one that's, you know, um, you know, in the light, the one that everyone could see. So, uh, so yeah, so that kind of always made me just stay uh, where I'm at. I always remember that. And and I've, it does feel like these, you know, pro basketball without borders, the basketball league in South Sudan. It feels like these, you know, grassroots initiatives are are so important to you and to your story, right? Like when you're in the NBA, you're with the Bulls for ten years, and then you get traded. How does that feel? Because for me, from the outside, I'm like. You know, we expect people to support teams for life, right? You, ha you're, you have one team that you champion, that you push, and you build a community within that team as a player, and then you have to leave. So how did that feel? It was, uh, it, it, it hurt. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it really hurt. But, you know, in the NBA, especially in the NBA, um, you could probably count in your hand, maybe not in your hand, but very close, uh, how many people have played with one team for 10 years. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Uh, you know, people get traded, people move, you look for different houses, everything. I was really blessed to play 10 years in one place. Um, it's kind I of unheard of. Like I haven't heard of many players that stay that long in a, in a place. It doesn't happen, especially for a team like Chicago. Uh, it's very few. The turnover uh, is quite quick, yeah. Yeah, and in the NBA, believe it or not, every year there's 130 players going out, there's 130 players coming in. So, you know, to do that, in one, not only to be in the NBA 15 years, but to be with one team for 10 years, you know, it says a lot. But, but when it happened, uh, my competitive side was, I want, I'm going to show you. Uh, that was my first instinct. Like, I'm going to show you, uh, you know, not only did you just lose a good basketball player, but I do so much within the community that, you know, it's so right away, my mindset, honestly, when I look back, it was more of a competitive mindset. Uh, now, now that I'm older, I'm, I'm kind of like, I should have stayed with certain things that I did there. Uh, you know, but it was such an emotional, um, uh, you know, time and decision. Uh, but at the same time where I went next, so I went to Cleveland uh, just for a few months, but then I ended up playing for Miami and I fell home again. Uh, that organization brought me in. Cleveland was great. So I didn't really, I felt I was still in the NBA uh, and I was building new friends and, and new career. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie. I When I look back, I, I've enjoyed Cleveland. I've enjoyed uh, Miami, uh, LA, not so much, but it is another topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get into uh, it. Yeah, but uh, no, but I'm very blessed and lucky to, to, to have, you know, experience those uh, teams and cities what was the lesson for you you think at the time looking back with the with the experience and the you know foresight 
retrospective like maturity being being traded yeah you know honestly i i had such a competitive nature that i took it as it's me against the person who made that decision that i'm going to show you um it didn't work out for them um the team just didn't get back to where it used to be uh, under the the leadership that made that decision. Uh, for me, honestly, I went on. I had a, a good career. Um, I made money. So when I look back, it, it really goes back to I, I honestly always feel that God is in my corner. Uh, and it's, it's a very strong thing to feel. Uh, a lot of people might just say it, but I honestly, my mindset tells me that my heart tells me that. So every time I go through tough times, you know, I always feel that he's got my back. You know, I really believe in it. You know, everything Less than that I've highly been favored. Yeah. And it's not in a I hate saying that because I feel that God loves everyone, but I really feel that your mindset and what you believe, your faith also matters. So, you know, I've been through a lot, but I always know it's this you know the outcome is about to be great uh, so. and i also think that like it's in those moments where a curveball is thrown at you that your test your faith is really tested and it is kind of like no i have to i have to know that this is what's best for me and i think that in in a moment like that you could have definitely got gotten kind of stuck in the separation anxiety but also like you know the instability in that moment but you went on it would have actually been sad if you spent your whole career with one team to be honest yeah. you know you would have had like <laughs> just one experience in yeah. in an nba league full of different experiences and different teams you know yeah no i remember even going to new teams and seeing seeing the way they do certain things and i'm just like wait this is how you guys do this this is how this is done sometimes it was better sometimes it wasn't but i got to actually compare um which you know uh, I'm thankful for now. And when you think about it, I was five years uh, without the Bulls, but I was 10 years of my life, uh, not only with the Bulls, but in Chicago, which is, by the way, the longest place I've ever lived. It's and cold, it, the coldest winters, probably. Yeah. And when I think back, I don't know if I actually lived in Chicago because I was so much into what I'm doing that, you know, I was here and there outside my house. It was gym home. It was really work. It was really focusing on crafting and being able to actually be in the history that I played for this team, like trying to make it happen every day. So craft is a good word, right? Because we're we're exploring craft on this show. And it's really interesting because I think that the word has so many different meanings for people. And now it's more so being seen as like, you know, my craft and it's like my artistry and like creativity and painting and music. When when I think of craft, I think of sports in a, in a really big way because you are you're not only crafting your skill set and building your skill set, but you are crafting your own body to do the things that you want it to do. And so, how did you? When did you realize like this is actually like I am you know sculpting my skills. You know, when I'm training and I'm going on the court, I'm actually preparing for that moment on the on the court, you know? I think, you know, for me, I made two great decisions when I got drafted that I would recommend to any, well, any, any uh, profession and like depending on what they do and what they need. 
when you get your first paycheck, um, I always tell people is spend it on things that will make you better, uh, not things that will make you look good uh, or not things that will get you know the wrong attention or the wrong praise. Uh, for me, when I signed my first check, um, obviously after taking care of my family, um, my decision was to have a chef, uh, to spend money on a chef that actually cooks for me every day. And my second decision was spending my money on a trainer, uh, a trainer that just focuses on my body and making me better. Um, and that's how I ended up playing 15 years. And I definitely think I could play more. I just, there's so much more that I wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, to be able to retire at 34, uh, it's it's really, it just speaks to the, those decisions that the I made. Longevity. I think. Yeah, because I knew that if I got somebody who just focuses on what I need to eat, uh, what did I eat today, how how much this I put in my body, what I need for energy, uh, what I need for better sleep, what I need to uh, be at my best performance, and someone who, you know, not consistently working on my, helping me develop my basketball skills, but also you know, telling me that, you know, this side of my body is weak. We need to strengthen this. My ankles are this. My, you know, my flexibility is not there. I need to get a stronger core. Um, and he would map out my program and things that I need to do. And those, you know, I didn't invest in cars. I didn't buy anything that, you know, is just not going to help me get better. Um, and, and that's really the difference between, you know, playing in a, in a league for 15 years and just playing five years or four years, which, you know, the average Korean NBA is about four years, um, maybe less than that. So how did you shake that feeling of like the monetization of something that you love so much and, and such a institution like the NBA that is, you know, capitalizing on talent, you know, young black talent? At the end of the day, no matter what everyone's anyone tells you, at the end of the day is you have to push yourself to be successful uh, and you have to do whatever it takes uh, for you to be successful in a way where not only you're going to make you're going to make a difference in your community, but you're going to change other people's life by just motivating them by not only how you carry yourself, but how you present you know, yourself and your work ethic. I think I think for me that, you know, whenever an opportunity is presented um, and I like the opportunity, I have to give it everything to, to succeed in that opportunity. And sometimes that takes a lot of sacrifice. Um, you know, I, I always tell people that, you know, you might say you want something, but you don't really, you know, act like you do want it. And even kids in my camp, I always tell them that, you know, the, the biggest thing from is stopping you being great is distractions um, and more so now than ever. Uh, it's, it's very easy to be tempted and be distracted in, you know, the wrong direction. Uh, but realizing that, you know, I always think about it this way. I don't want to be powerful in terms of, you know, the more you succeed, obviously, the more power you have or the more money you have. But for me, honestly, it's my drive and my push is more of what I want to do with it. It's not more of what it's going to do just for me. It's it's how do you become 
you know, um, successful enough where you could actually change the life in the course of how you view it in your mind? How can you influence that part instead of, you know, I'm going to just exist for myself and be successful for myself? Well, you could push for that, but you can push even more. How can you get to a level where you can actually now be, you know, you could say, I want to build a school in this community. I think this this is how it should be run. This is how basketball should be run in this country. Or this is how people should, you know, uh, this is the schools that we need in Africa, for example. I always, you know, voice my opinion and how the school system is not right for Africa. Uh, but how can I get myself in a position where I could actually be an example and create something where they could be like, oh, that's actually right. You know, it needs to be done this way. It's never going to happen until you put yourself in a position where, you know, you're strong enough to actually make a difference for people to see it. We live in a world where everyone could say whatever they want, but only a few are actually doing what they want. Thank you for listening to Channel 33 with Yusra Al-Baqir and our guest today, Luol Deng. Be sure to tune into an all-new episode in two weeks' time. For more on our series, go to soul.digital. You can also follow us on Instagram by going to at soul.dxb and at Yusra Al-Baqir. You're listening to Soul Radio.